I was here five years ago. Raise hands of those who were here in the class we did five years ago, please. Did you get your book? Did you get your free book? Great. I, I promised them in the class that five years ago I was in the process of writing this book. I thought it took me five years until I found some notes from nine years ago when I started writing the book. So I'm, I, I'm thrilled. I made a commitment to this church, and I made a commitment to a, a small church in Thompson Falls, Montana, and I made contact with them also so that I could uh, uh, go and do a seminar and uh, at least an evening and give them some free books. It was a small class of 12 people. My name is Charlie Fink. I have been a marriage and family counselor for 28 years. I come from a little town uh, called Liberty Lake, Washington. Uh, It's a lake. We live on the lake or very close to it. And it's right on the border of Idaho in Washington State. It's about 20 miles outside of Spokane, Washington. And I've spent many years uh, ministering to people, marriage, family, uh, children, individuals, and Part of that process of healing involved the ability and the willingness to forgive. And after many years, I believe the Lord was leading me, and I had a great desire to share uh, how to do that, how to forgive. The reality is, and this is written <clears throat> on the front of the book, and and I've got a, a, a I brought a bunch of of uh, bookmarks as well that I'll that you're you're welcome to have if whether you buy a book or not. Uh, And it says on it something very simple that C.S. Lewis said. He said, everybody thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And that reality is because it's, it's difficult to do. And so what I wanted to do was to write something, put something down, an enduring product, something that people could hold on to and share with friends and family that literally teach you how to forgive. When I was here last time, we would have talked about a a simple little prayer that I would have handed out and taught you on a piece of paper. This was the foundation for the book. The middle six chapters of the book define and explain exactly how to do each part of this prayer. And I'm going to be going through some of that again tonight, as well as encouraging you to be disciples. A disciple is simply a follower. This is what New Covenant is about. This is what Christianity is about. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, means to be a disciple. I want to give you the ability and the means. The willingness is up to you. You have to decide whether or not this is something that's helpful for you or healing for you or good for you. And then then it's automatic. You're going to want to share it. You're going to want to make it a part of your life as well as, as friend's life. So the message is one of forgiving prayer. And I want to share that with you, and I'd like to start in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for this means and willingness and ability that you've given me to be here this evening in Stillwater at New Covenant of uh, sharing with some that were here five years ago or longer. I believe it was longer than five years ago. And that are here this evening to hear about you, 
to hear about that you're, what, the gift of what your son gave us through what he did on the cross. Father, we've just come through a celebration of Easter a few weeks ago where we celebrate that terrible, terrible day in that Jesus paid for all of our sins, but that lovely and joyous day when he rose from the dead. So, Lord, I ask that you be here with us this evening through your Holy Spirit to teach us, to strengthen and exhort us, and to bring comfort to our hearts. I thank you for all these things, especially the gift of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to read something to you, and uh, I'm I'm going to meld it into uh, this talk. I was actually uh, uh, someone, uh, a little library. We have Little Liberty Lake Library in our town. Our town is only about 4,500 people. And they asked me to do a reading. And I, so I didn't know what to do. So uh, this was a few weeks ago. So I got online and I, I Googled uh, book reading. And the first thing it said was, don't read your book. And I thought, I'm dead. What do I do now? Well, it said, talk about the book. Talk about how you, you know, the trials and tribulations of writing it. Pick out a few things in it that, that, that seem dramatic and dynamic and things like that. So I, I did that, and it was great. Seven people came. I didn't expect more because we only had seating for seven. So I, 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 thought, I thought if I'd put 100 chairs in there, maybe the Lord would have filled them. But seven chairs, seven people. It was very interesting. And guess what? They were all people that I called and said, hey, come to the reading. <laughs> So it was, uh, but I sold some books and it was cool. And, and that, that's the part. This is a, this is a, a new group of people for me. I, I'm not about selling books. I'm about sharing a message. If I could give them all away, I would. It's that simple. I just can't afford it. So uh, uh, Stephen bought a bunch of books, selling them to you for $10. Great deal, uh, I guess. <laughs> it's just easy because you hand a $10 bill, you get a book, no change and stuff like that. My hope and, and why I use the word disciples with you was that's what I want. This is a message that's been helping people for 28 years. It isn't Charlie Fink's message. It's God's message. It's all based on Scripture. So let me share something with you, and, and then I'll get into the teaching. In October of 2006, Charles Roberts walked into an Amish schoolhouse in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, barricaded the doors, and proceeded to shoot 10 young girls ranging in age from 6 to 12. Five died immediately, and three more died over the next few days. The nation was shocked. Our hearts, our spirits violated by this senseless act. All the more frustrating and confusing was the fact that Charles Roberts committed suicide as the Pennsylvania State Police broke through the schoolhouse doors. There'd be no trial, no explanation, no one to punish or hold accountable, and no resolution. We had no one on whom to blame or judge, at least no one alive. We had no recourse. We've experienced something very similar in the last week or so. We had a bombing up in Boston, Massachusetts that killed three people and injured over 100. We've seen it forever on television. Hopefully the young man that is still alive will give us some reason, which will actually help us a little bit. But if he dies... We're going to experience some of the same, the same issues. We had a fertilizer plant blow up in Texas this week also. 
17, 18 people died, a whole town leveled. They're asking some of the same questions. Why? How? God, how could you have allowed this? They'll find out that somebody made a mistake. Somebody did something, and those who lost loved ones may blame them, may condemn them. It's what we do almost naturally when we are so offended by the events around us. Quietly riding in horse-drawn carriages, the Amish families and friends of the slain little girls gathered. They covered their faces with their hands as they wept for their loss. Funerals were performed over the next few days, and the world watched as they grieved. All the news media covered the event and its after effects, and what we all heard and saw was an unfolding expression of forgiveness. We learned that the Amish community had extended an invitation to Maria Roberts, the wife of the man who killed their daughters, to attend one of the last meetings to express their grief and sorrow. They recognized that she too had experienced overwhelming loss, her husband and the father of their three children. They chose to live one of the basic tenets of their faith, forgiving. In stark contrast, the world was outraged. What I've learned over the years is, and why I share this is, because that is one of the dynamics where we hear things like, how could we ever forgive something like that? And yet, what we deal with constantly aren't those huge issues. They're not the, the explosions or the, the, the travesties of, of, uh, of violent acts. They're the everyday things, the everyday hurts and wounds, the harsh word between husband and wife, the conflict between father and son and mother and daughter, the conflict between roommates and friends, the conflict between relatives. It's these everyday things. When we're confronted with the traumatic big things, we wonder, we ponder, can I forgive this and can I forgive that? But when we're dealing with the little bitty things that happen all the time that seem like little bitty things, but constant things, we don't even think about it. Oh, I just let it go. I just stuffed it. I just I, The term I hear the most is, well, I dealt with. And I say, how? How did you deal with it? It's basically just forgotten or denied or pushed away. Why is this so important? Because... Scripture says to us in Hebrews 12, 15, don't let any bitter root spring forth, hurting you and defiling the people around you. That means every hurt and wound that you experience, even the smallest ones, have the potential to breed a bitter root in you, a judgment, a resentment, a bitterness, a defilement. A bitter root is not the hurtful things that happen to us. A bitter root is not the harsh word. A bitter root is not the things that people do to us. The bitter root is our sinful response to the hurtful things that happen to us. I can't stop the hurtful things that happen to you. Jesus' death on the cross didn't stop the hurtful things that happen to you. But he does say in Hebrews 12, 15, don't let, don't let, don't let these bitter roots spring forth. 
assuming and believing that if we are followers of Christ, we will deal with the things he deals with. Pain, suffering. What did he tell us in Matthew's account of Christ in Gethsemane? My heart is filled with sorrow and distress. My heart is nearly broken with distress. Enough so that he said to his father, if this cup could pass me by. His father's answer was no. And then he says something beautiful. Let it be as you would have it, not as I would have it. That's the model for us. And it is painful. Does it mean it's always going to be painful? No, there's delight and joy in our lives. What I have found over the years, that almost all judgment, all resentment, all bitterness is preceded by some type of perceived wound. Some type of perceived hurt. Think of it right now. We all have, generally speaking, somebody that that has hurt or wounded us recently. Or maybe it's something that occurred years ago, but it's still there. It hasn't been resolved. And some of you say, Charlie, I don't want to bring that up. I, I, I don't want to resurrect it. I don't want to bring it to the surface because it's too painful. It hurts. That's telling you that it needs to be taken care of. Pain is the message that something is wrong. I was a military pilot for 13 years. I flew B-52s, a 508,000-pound aircraft. I used to fly that 508,000-pound aircraft 10 feet off the ground at 400 miles an hour. That's fun. (laughs) That's fun. We had a radar navigator and a navigator downstairs. They did not have windows. I had windows. They could only look through a television screen, and all they could see were those mountains in front of us. And I would hear, I could tell how close we were getting by how high-pitched their voices were becoming. (laughs) And I kept saying, I can see. I can see out there. And they're going, "Uh, uh, pilot, uh, we're at five miles. Pilot, we're at three. Pilot, we're at a mile. Okay, you know, and go up over the top. Well, in the middle of that cockpit, in the middle of hundreds of instruments, that plane had eight engines. There were five engine instruments for each engine. That's 40 instruments right there. Then there was airy fueling. There was radar or or radio equipment. There was airy fueling. There was weapons uh, instruments. All this stuff surrounded us. And right in the middle, bright yellow light, called the Master Caution Light, the MCL. Every other light was white during the day and red at night. Why was it red at night? So that didn't destroy your night vision. Red light doesn't affect your your night vision. But that Master Caution Light was bright yellow. And anything that went wrong with the plane, that Master Caution Light came on. It was the plane's pain sensor. When that light came on, it was basically going, ooh, there's something wrong. There's a a fire on engine seven. Ooh, there's something wrong. There's an engine leak in in the aft fuel tank. Anything. There's a generator offline. Whatever it happens to be, not enough pressure in, in, in something like this. The pain that we experience in our life is God's master caution light. The guilt that we experience because of our sin is God's master caution light. Now, I know they're not comfortable, but would they get your attention if they were comfortable 
if you felt really good every time you sinned, if you felt really good every time you got shot or stabbed or cut or someone said something mean to you, we'd all be dead by the time we were 12. Uh, So we recognize when Scripture says, don't let any bitter root spring forth hurting you, the bitter roots are our sinful response to God's master caution light, to that warning system that he has in us. So part of this teaching is to say that pain is valuable. Pain doesn't feel good. Guilt is valuable, and it's designed not to feel good. Guilt is that active message of your conscience that God has given you. And he says in Hebrews 12, 15, don't let, don't let. What does that mean? Don't let means don't let. And God's saying to us and implying to us that we have the means to not let a bitter root spring forth, hurting us and defiling those around us. Part of this teaching, and the reason I wrote the book was so that people will learn how to not let those things defile us and wound us the way they do. See, I can get to two or three people in a counseling office at a time. I can get to 50 or 100 people in something like this. But if I can put a book out, I can get to millions of people. Millions. My wife asked me when I started this project years ago, who's your audience? And I said, the world. And she said, could you pare that down a little bit? (laughs) And so I said, okay, Christians. That's still a billion of us. A billion of us. Think of it. That if you're a disciple and you recognize that this simple prayer brings healing to your life and a stronger relationship with the Lord, you're going to share it. Now, you might not get up and talk the way I do, but you might have a friend that says, what would you do uh, Sunday night? Oh, I heard this guy from Washington, and, you know, he shared some things. But, you know, I was reading, and this makes sense. I have a little sign in my office, and it says, Jesus works. It lights up, too. I told a couple from Sacramento, California, I wish I had a big sign over my door that said, Jesus works. Well, they sent me this little thing, and it's actually written with macaroni. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like macaroni. I don't know. And I turn it on, and it's a black light, and the macaroni glows. And it says, Jesus works. It doesn't mean he's employed. It means that he'll work in our life if we will let him. How often do we hear sermons on, let's invite Jesus into our hearts. We do this with a sinner's prayer. If you're, if you're Catholic or Lutheran or, or Episcopal or Orthodox, you'll do it through a sacramental process, but it's, it's all, it's the same. We're basically admitting that, that Jesus came, God's only son, that we're sinners. Have grace on us, you know, forgive me. What does this mean? What does this mean when we make this type of decision? We make the decision to live the life that Jesus has for us. We make the decision to say, I want you in my life. We're basically saying, work in my life. 
Come be part of my life. So we say, come in. And I got to thinking, I can say that prayer, but I can put a wall up if I want. A wall of judgment, a wall of resentment, a wall of business, or uh, uh, of resentment and, and bitterness. I almost said a wall of business. <laughs> I wonder what kind of slip that is. <clears throat> so we, we can do that. And yet we're saying to God, <clears throat> come into my life. And he's bumping up against these walls. He's bumping up against this, this pattern of sin, these resentments, these bitternesses, these judgments. Luke 6.46 says something very interesting. Why? Oh, wait, I'll, I'll do this better. How many of you love the Lord? Raise your hand, please. Well, we'll see, won't we? Ooh, I haven't done that in a while. I like that. Because he says in Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you to do. Well, you just said you love the Lord. That means <clears throat> I'm, I'm getting a message. Is that you? Is, oh, 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 I see. It's, it's someone's. <laughs> I was open and ready. <laughs> uh, I was, we were at Harvest Church. This was quite a few years ago. And it got so bad that they put a thing up on the wall uh, uh, that said, please turn your cell phones off. And literally, right at that moment, like five cell phones went off. And I thought, ooh, that is weird that they'd all go off at the same time. It's like they were on a conference call or something, you know. <laughs> so we, we acknowledge, and I got to thinking, what if we did what Jesus wanted us to do? And, and you go, yeah, that seems pretty obvious, Charlie. You know, duh, we're supposed to do. But, but to learn specifically how, especially with something as important as forgiving. We do. We, we've heard so many sermons and teachings on the importance of forgiving. But have you ever heard a teaching on how to forgive? That's what, oh, you have, good. <laughs> I'm going to sit. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, this, okay. Oh, that's, oh, a class, not a sermon. No. Oh, okay. Good. Uh, I just, see, I Googled it two years ago and it, I, I, you just don't hear a lot of teaching on how. And we've been, we've been teaching people how to forgive for 28 years. Someone said, well, gee, are you teaching on this now? Cause you've written a book. I said, no, I've written a book because I've been teaching about this for 28 years. So that's what this is about. And the hard thing is, I want to be really bold. I, I keep a scripture very close to me. It's Joshua 1.9. And it says, Charlie, be strong, be confident, don't be afraid. I'm by your side all the time. I want you to be disciples. I want you to buy a thousand books. I, I know you can't afford it. But I want you to be able to say and share to, to bring healing to your own life. And my belief is that when we do the things that God wants us to do, he comes freely into our lives. Because we're saying, look, I've cleared the path for you. What a lovely thing that is. Instead of come into my life, and I think it's good to say the sinner's prayer. I think it's appropriate. I think it's a real beginning for most of us. But I think it's more effective, if I can say that in a relationship with God, to do what it is that he wants us to do. And thereby, I'm saying, look, I've created a path for you. And he will come freely. Come freely. 
What are those everyday hurts and wounds? We see them in family, work, church. I'm asked to speak in churches all the time, and I, I say I, I can give you three perspectives. I can teach a lesson. I can exhort your church, and that exhort means to warn and to strengthen. I can comfort your church. And so depending on what the pastor wants or the, uh, a leader in the church wants, I will pattern my, my, my presentation to one of those three generally. If there's a church split, then sometimes they need comforting. They need to be comforted and, and, and restored and, and brought back to a place to deal with the, the pain and the wounding. Sometimes a pastor wants just a teaching. You know, teach us about this or teach us about that. Sometimes I've had a pastor say to me, my congregation is going wacko. <clears throat> Come in and exhort them. Put it on hard. This is the problem. We've got gossip going on or something like that. <clears throat> and so I do that as well. What I see mostly in people's lives are the small little things in relationship. God wants us to be corporate. Corporate means to come together like this. God's dream is one body, one body of Christ. And we all see the conflict in churches. We all hear about it all the time. Maybe you've had some conflict in your church. But he hopes that we come together. And does it mean we all have to be the same? Do the, does, does this church have to be like the Episcopals? Does the, do the Lutherans have to be like, the, the, like uh, Harvest Church? No, that's not the point. It's unified in Christ. And there are ways to do that. And one of them is forgiving. Another one is confessing. Another one is repentance. Those are the three dynamics, foundational dynamics of healing. I'll be sharing with you the emphasis on forgiving this, easy, this evening. I've been teaching for uh, 28 years, and I've learned that forgiving is simple. It's just not easy. It's simple. It's just not easy. That means <clears throat> there are two things that have to be there to do anything. A willingness and an ability. By the end of this evening, you're going to have the ability. That's a given. If you choose to purchase a book, uh, uh, Stephen has purchased 60 books. They're sitting out there. Great deal, wasn't it? $12.95 on Amazon. Ten nine, no, $10 for, for you guys. And I, I'm thrilled that I could give you guys that were here those free books. That was my commitment to you. Is it easy? No. It's why it doesn't happen that often. Countless times, and I say countless meaning thousands of times over the years in the counseling office, I've said, well, have you forgiven? And most people will go, well, yeah, sure. And I said, well, have you done that? I, I just did it. How did you do it? Well, I said, I forgive. And what does that mean? What did those words mean? And I get a blank stare. The concept or the words, I forgive you, are not abracadabra. They are not magic words. They don't cast a spell and make things happen. They have no meaning at all unless you give them meaning. No word has 
meaning unless you give it meaning. So if you come up to me and say, gee, you know, I just banged into your car. Will you forgive me? And I go, oh, yeah, I forgive you. No meaning at all. No meaning at all. So we're going to talk more about that. Again, C.S. Lewis said, everybody thinks it's a good thing until they have something to forgive. Why is it so difficult? Well, one of the things that happens is when you say to someone, and I'll give you a specific example. I had a gentleman come in who uh, had a a terrible relationship with his dad. His father, uh, he said to me, uh, my dad uh, drank excessively, beat mom, uh, womanized, gambled, uh, uh, made a mess of the house when he got sick, was abusive to us, a whole variety of things. I said, your dad was an alcoholic, and he got offended because he thought I was judging him. I said, I'm not judging him. I'm just labeling what you just described to me. Your father was an alcoholic. We had to get through that first. Then I said, have you forgiven him? And his whole demeanor changed, and he said, oh, yes, I have. I said, well, how did you do that? He said, well, you see, my father's father was an alcoholic also, and my grandfather beat my dad and was abusive to his wife my grandmother. And so, you see, I understand, Charlie, what happened. I said, gee, I think that's great that you understand. But did you forgive? He said, I just explained to you. I understand. I said, I, I heard that. But did you forgive? And, and he got confused. He thought understanding was forgiveness. Matthew didn't say, I command you to understand so that you will be understood. He said, I command you to forgive so that you will be forgiven. And unless you forgive, you won't be forgiven. That's scripture. Has nothing to do with understanding. I think it's good to understand some things for a a continued process of healing. But is understanding forgiving? No, it's not. And it's so interesting as I look at your faces because I'm seeing you go, but that's what I've done. That's how I've dealt with this. It's just one of the ways in which we substitute something that is in and of itself okay for real forgiving. And then we wonder why Bitter roots continue to spring forth, hurting us and defiling those around us. There's an old phrase, and maybe it's still used, is we end up going around that mountain again and again and again because we are not forgiving. We are understanding. And that, that doesn't bring healing. Good for, for a continued process. What else do we do? We rationalize. Oh, well, you see, Charlie, it's okay. How often have you said or someone has said to you when you go to them and say, will you forgive me for this? What's the expected response? Oh, it's okay. It's, it's, It's okay. When the reality is, it isn't okay. To forgive, we have to first accept that an affront or a trespass has happened. Saying it's okay is just pushing it aside. Forgive us our trespasses as we have been trespassed against. As we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us. So we have to 
accept and admit that there has been a trespass. That's particularly difficult when it comes often to our parents. Aren't we told to honor our parents? And, and so if I'm saying, well, yeah, my dad was very abusive. He was uh, falling down drunk. He beat us and he beat mom. We start to think, well, I'm, I feel very disloyal to my parents. I'm disloyal to this relationship. When the reality is forgiving does not happen unless there is a, a distinct acceptance and an acknowledgement, at least in your perception, that some trespass has happened. So it isn't okay. That's why we're making a decision to forgive. If, in fact, it was, was okay, there'd be no reason to forgive. And yet God commands us to. Does that make sense? Yeah. I was all ready to say, give me an amen, but I'm not going to. <clears throat> There's another reason we don't uh, forgive is the pain is too great. And that's connected to the concept of revenge. Do you know where revenge comes from? It comes from the concept of what they call homeostatic balance. We're built scientifically, naturally, anthropologically as human beings. We seek balance. Water seeks balance. Energy seeks balance. Light seeks balance. We as human beings seek balance. And that means that if, if uh, something terrible happens, we decide to do something about it. If we're looking at a scale, a very painful, difficult thing happens, well, one of the ways in which we balance that is sheer revenge. We're just going to get them back. We want them to hurt. We want them to be in pain. We want them to suffer. And you, you might say, well, I don't go that far. You don't have to go that far. You just have to want a little bit of pain and a, a little bit of, of suffering. Yeah. I, don't want, I don't want you to, something terrible to happen to you. I just want you to be in pain for a little bit, you know, just. I want it a whole lot. Yeah, okay, it, it, some honesty. I want it a whole lot. So we seek that balance. And what's interesting is most of us don't shoot people. Some of you may. Uh, most of us don't stab people. But what we do is we hold on to bitterness in our hearts, judgments in our hearts, resentments in our hearts, things we'd like to say that we never quite say in our hearts. That's how you know you haven't forgiven. You have this little script in there going, yeah, but, and, and if, I, if I had the nerve to, I mumbled, mumbled, that's judgment, that's resentment, that's bitterness. That's a bitter root, even if it's a little one. You're driving down the road, someone cuts you off. What's your first response? Mumble, grumble, mumble, grumble. That's a bitter root. It's a poor response to an offense. What's the offense? It's just me driving down the road. I just want to get from here to there and you cut in front of me. It's the reality of what happens. I bought a brand new Mazda RX-7 in 1980. Brand new. Faster than a Corvette that year. Rotary engine. I had a $350 ticket 15 minutes out of the showroom floor. <laughs> It was a beautiful rapport between man and machine. And the police department. department. I had so many speeding tickets in Washington State, I was on what they called an assigned risk. An insurance company had to cover me 
And they charged me $1,200 a year in 1980. I was a pilot in the military. I was an officer. I had plenty of money. I had to keep up my image, of course, and the Mazda certainly did that. I was pulling out one day from the Liberty Lake where I lived, and I'm like in third gear. I'm up around 70, 80 miles an hour. The tack is up around 6,000 RPM. Five gears, six gears maybe. And this old, like 55 Oldsmobile pulls in front of me, slam the brakes on, middle of the summer. My response was to scream and yell at this person. Windows were open. Top was open on the car. I pull up next to this person, and it's this little old lady doing the best she could. I was mortified. I felt so bad because I'm sure she heard things that those lovely little ears should not have heard. I pulled over to the side of the road, and this was before I was in ministry, and I thought, there's something wrong here. What was it that was so terrible that I would respond that poorly to someone simply pulling in front of me? Think of it for a moment. In that particular case, we've all been offended somehow on the road. Somehow. And the reality was, and what I learned about myself was, it's this little guy inside, this little Charlie, who is basically saying, why are you getting in my way? It's just me. I'm just trying to get from here to there. That was a wound. But I responded so poorly to the wound because in my life, I had filled myself with bitter roots. I had a terrible relationship with my father. And so I was filled with hurt, wound, resentment, and bitterness. And that just that was just like the straw that broke the camel's back. It's just an opportunity to vent it all just like that. That's called road rage. We all experience it from little bitty bits of just being annoyed, but the dynamic is the same. It's that It's that lovely little person inside that basically says, it's just me. It's innocent me. And I'm saying that truthfully. It's it's innocent me. And look what you've done. And then you start to see how much bitter roots have been built up. That can happen with anything. Husband and wife. When things seem to be going along just right, and then all of a sudden there's this blow up. And you, you even say, where does this come from? It comes from stored bitter roots. A distinct lack of forgiving other people. And it builds and it builds and it builds. And that's why I think Scripture says, don't let any bitter root spring forth because that's how it comes out. So we recognize that if there's reasonable enough pain, there's going to be judgment and sometimes revenge. And that's the balance. And we say, okay, I'll, I'll balance. Well, do you know what? There is only one balance to sin. Only one balance to sin. And that was Christ's death on the cross. There is nothing you can do to balance out another person's sin or your own. Nothing. When we confess a sin, we're proclaiming what Jesus did on the cross. When we forgive, we're proclaiming what Jesus did on the cross. When we make a decision to repent, we are proclaiming what Jesus did on the cross. That's what healing is all about. 
That's what gives us the opportunity to to be in a deeper relationship with Christ. Why do we forgive? Okay, that's what Scripture says. Why else? Well, Scripture says in Matthew, I command you to forgive. So we can simply obey. Primary reason. We obey Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those. We obey. We do what it is. And and there's no great big teaching when it comes to obeying. I suppose I could develop a, a whole weekend seminar on what it means to obey. But some of us are rebellious. Some of us are vengeful in our hearts. So obeying isn't so easy to do. Isn't it interesting? Scripture says, children... Obey your parents. How many of us as adults think we're supposed to obey our parents? So? No. If you're a child, you're to obey your parents. But I, I see a couple of people that might be under 12. Is there anyone under 12? Young man, are you under 12? How old are you? How old? 12. Okay, so scripturally, you're becoming an adult. <clears throat> Powerful. Culture won't allow you to be an adult, but scripturally, you're you're becoming an adult. That's what Jewish bar mitzvah is at 12, 13 years old, right in that time frame. That's when Jesus was in the temple. That's that first example we have of him being an adult. And mom and and dad were on their way out into the desert and on a caravan, and they realized Jesus wasn't there, and they went back. And mother was upset. What did he say to her? Mom, I'm about my father's business. He was declaring his adulthood. We see it again at Cana. When he was basically saying, that's it. I don't need to be parented anymore. I'm my own man and I'm serving my heavenly father. But our culture doesn't allow us to do that. So we do, do we, are we to obey our parents? Can we honor our parents without obeying them? Yes. One of them, one of the ways is to learn how to forgive them. We're all hurt by things mom and dad did or didn't didn't do. And, And I find myself sharing this more and more. Our fathers and mothers are just men and women. That's all they are. They're not gods. They're men and women. And some of you who are hearing this, you're kind of in between. You're young, but you have children. You're just a man and a woman doing what you're able to raise to rear your children. Those of us who are older, we remember our, my, my folks have been gone for many years. And, and I, I, I can accept more and more just a man and a woman. My cousin just sent me some videos, DVDs that he made from movies from the late 30s when my folks were kids. And it is amazing to see them as young people, a young man and a young woman before they had children. Just a man and a woman. We are to honor our father and mothers as adults, not to obey them. But we are to obey the Lord. So why do we forgive? We obey. That's one of the reasons. The second reason to forgive is to identify with Christ. And isn't that part of what our faith is all about? Becoming like Christ. Becoming Christ-like. These are phrases we use all the time. Patient, kind, slow to anger. All of those types of things. Becoming like Christ also means becoming like what he experienced on the cross. And what did he experience? 
tremendous sacrifice, tremendous pain, tremendous humility. He paid for our sin and didn't deserve to pay for one. That's humbling. It wasn't fair. Is it fair to forgive? No. And you'll see as we go through it, you're giving up your right to pay back. You have a right to pay back, not revenge. And I'll explain the difference. So we forgive to identify with Christ. Wow. So we go back to the phrase, forgiving is simple. It's just not easy. It's really very difficult. I, if I had said to Stephen, I'd like to do a seminar on forgiving, and I'd like you to put up there how to forgive, the absolute most difficult thing you will ever do. There'd be three people here, me, Rich, and Anita. <laughs> no, uh, Stephen and Geeti would be here. Yes, <laughs> there'd be five. We don't want to be told things are difficult, but that's the truth. Why would I teach something? Why would I counsel something? Why would I write about something that you're going to find out later anyway? And you're going to think, man, I wasted 10 bucks on this book because he didn't tell me what it was all about. Or I wasted time sitting in this conference, this meeting. It's hard. Was it easy for Jesus to go to the cross? No. It was very difficult. He doesn't ask us to do that. He just asks us to believe that he did for us. And that we do get the opportunities to do similar things by deciding to forgive. It's humbling and it's difficult and it's sacrificial. I mentioned two terms earlier, willing and able. Are you willing to do that? You will be able. But will you be willing to do that. So we identify. Why else do we forgive? To restore and be healed. That's what we see the most in the counseling office. It's one of the reasons, again, why I will continue to share this message because I've seen thousands of people healed through forgiving. Thousands. That's my testimony. If I came in and said, yeah, I saw one person healed and, and that was really cool. And you say, how long have you been counseling? 28 years. You'd go, oh, there isn't a lot of validity in that. Even personal testimonies are sometimes hard to believe. If I share something very unusual with you and say, well, it only happened once, you'd say, oh, maybe Charlie's just stretching a little bit. I've seen thousands of people healed as they learned how to forgive. My hope is that as you make the decision to pray, forgiving for yourself, for others, for God, that you will have a testimony, that you'll just share it with the people in your home. Share it with friends and neighbors. That makes you disciples. We often wonder, we hear the word disciple and we think of the disciples, the, the disciples. And I was anguishing about something a few weeks ago and I said to my wife, gosh, I wish I had 12 disciples like Jesus. And I thought, no, 11. You know, that 11 would work. And then I thought, no, I want them to do better than they did. I want people to do better. Why? 
I love the, the phrase in Matthew. It says, Jesus says to the disciples, how long must I endure you? <laughs> and, so we have some sense. And how many of them were at the cross? Well, let's see. There were th- No, there was one. When he went to Gethsemane and, and Peter, James, and John, and he invited them. He invited all the disciples, but he focused on Peter, James, and John. And he said, you know, be there and pray with me and pray with me. And they fell asleep. I, I, I want assistance maybe to do more. He said to Peter, you couldn't stay awake for even an hour. Pray that you don't go through the test. The spirit is willing, but the nature is weak. We, we will, Jesus said we'll do better things than he. Oh, think of that. We will do better things than he. If we go by today's standard, when it comes to evangelizing, Jesus didn't do so well. He could hardly get the disciples to believe what he wanted. Now we have more people. We have social media. We have, we have things like this. So we, we pray to forgive, to be healed and restored. Who, who do we forgive? Whom do we forgive? My wife's a literate and English teacher. I have to remember these things. Very good. Ourselves. Who else? Others and God. That's tough, isn't it? There's a natural abhorring. There's a natural distancing. There's a natural resistance to forgiving God. Because we seem to think that if we're forgiving God, we're, we're claiming that he has sinned against us. And, and so we, we find this difficult. And yet we blame God for so many things. I was ministering to a woman who lost her son in a car accident and he, he went through the windshield and she kept saying, how could this happen? How could God allow this? He was a good Christian boy. How could this have happened? And, and the truth was it was physics. It was a function of inertia and speed and friction and ice and he hit a tree and he just kept on going right through the windshield. But you don't say that to a grieving mom. You, you listen to her heart. You console her. And she, she found herself very angry at God. Because see, Scripture says all things are possible with God. And so she transformed her grief into possibility. She transformed her anguish and pain into possibility and put it on God and said, if it was possible, why didn't it happen? Why didn't he save him? I can't answer those questions, by the way. I don't know what decision is made at some higher level in God's realm that allowed this boy to die. But there's another very important point. It says possible. That doesn't mean God's going to do everything that we want him to do. He has... One of the things I learned being in the military was, and they used to say, you know, that's, that decision is made at a higher pay grade, was the people above me always had a bigger picture. And that's truth. They always have a bigger picture. You start working in the mailroom at a business, and you, you see the CEO making some type of foolish decision, and we go, man, if I was up there, I'd do it differently. Probably not, because you don't have the whole picture. You see a little bit of what's going on, and we see a little bit, and yet we know the mind of God. 
We know the mind of Christ. Scripture and the Holy Spirit helps us to understand that. But can we fathom all of it? No, we can't. And so we make a decision to put our faith in something that we choose to believe, and you have ultimate choice all the time. So we learn to forgive God. And someone says, well, I don't get angry at God. Uh, You get angry at God for the weather. And you guys more than most. I live in a place, there are no tornadoes. There are no hurricanes. We don't get those types of things that you have. We have a volcano not too far away, Mount St. Helens, but uh, we discount that because it only happens one every few hundred years. You just had a, a, a tornado warning the other day. Sirens go off, all that. Didn't you? Was it? Or, oh, you didn't. Okay, that was just in Tulsa? Okay. So you were fortunate. But how many? What's that? Yeah, (laughs) well, it's great if you're an insurance salesman, you know. (laughs) So the reality is that that you experience these things. And and I can promise you that if you have lost loved ones or you lost a home or a business in a tornado, you're going to be angry at God. And especially a tornado, because a tornado seems to be very directive. It doesn't it doesn't it's not like a hurricane where everybody gets to pay a little bit of a price. It, It goes like this. And it picks out this guy over here and that guy over there. And that guy is the one that's going to say, why me, God? And I suppose God could say, but why not you? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It might be harder to respond to. So we learn to forgive self as well. And it's interesting, when we use this simple little prayer, we simply put our name in it. Lord, I give you permission to take the judgment and bitterness out of my heart that I have for me. Scripture says no one hates their own body, and I don't find that to be so. It's, a, it's a, a metaphorical statement, and it basically means we shouldn't. We shouldn't. And yet we judge and blame and condemn, our, condemn ourselves because we think that's the safe thing to do. Oh, no, I don't judge and blame other people, but I'm really hard on myself. And I say, why are you so hard on yourself? We think that's the safe place to go, when we're angry, when we're frustrated, all just blame me. Scripture says judge not, period. Judgment is sin, whether you judge others, yourself, or God. So we don't have that freedom to judge and blame and condemn ourselves. We are to hold ourselves accountable. We're even to hold others accountable, and we're to hold God accountable. There you go. Accountable. Now, what does that mean? Is it arrogant to say, but God's going to do this. You see, God promised this. God, he said, I don't think it's arrogant to claim, if God says he's going to do it, to say, God's going to do it. I expect him to do what he says he's going to do. That's called faith. Faith. Not being angry at him, not testing him, but accepting that if God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. So we learn to forgive others. Others is pretty simple. That seems obvious, doesn't it? We are to forgive others. And it's interesting that Scripture talks about uh, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Okay, boom, boom. Okay, 
let's see, someone wants your coat, give them your shirt too. Okay, it's a shirt and a coat. What if someone rapes and kills your daughter? It's not a shirt, is it? It's not a cheat, is it? I met a woman a few weeks ago at a conference in Seattle, and her father had been shot and killed. I don't know the circumstances. The family was devastated. Her brothers and sisters were so angry at God. She stopped by the booth. She bought a couple books and said, I hope my family, my siblings will read this. I saw a show on TV years ago. might have been Oprah. I'm not sure. And it was about sexual abuse. And some national uh, provider of care for people who are abused looked right into the camera and said, sexual abuse is the one sin we should never forgive. It devastated me. We are to forgive every affront. Every affront. Why? God has equipped you to be disciples. God has equipped you to move in and through this world, bringing his love, his knowledge, his wisdom to the world. And you can't do that if you're beaten down, if you allow others to beat you down or you beat you down. Or even if you believe God's beating you down, he doesn't do that. He's a resurrection God. This is what we celebrate on Easter. He's a resurrection God. He says, yes, you've been down and out because of your sin. And he's a forgiving God and we are to forgive so that we claim what he did on the cross. So that each time we do sin, each time we do make a mistake, we resurrect. We allow God to resurrect. To do what? To share what it is that he's put us on this earth for. He put each one of us on this earth to be seen and heard. I want to direct that specifically to this young man. What's your name? What is it? Noah. Noah, you were put on this earth to be seen and heard. You were built with a message to share with the world. Who knows what it might be? It might be through being a pilot. might be through being a doctor or a lawyer. Every one of us is built to be seen and heard. What's sad is, and we see this, I was going to say more in youth, but it really isn't more in youth. It's in all of us. The strange things we'll do to be seen and heard that have nothing to do with the way God created us. Some people are loud. Some people are withdrawn. Some people are argumentative. God put every one of us on this earth to be seen and heard, but to be seen and heard the way he created us, not the way the world, the flesh, and the devil have influenced us. When we make a decision to forgive, we're clearing out much of that stuff, if you will, that gets in the way of who God created you to be. Knowing it isn't enough. Having knowledge of God isn't enough. Believing, believing in what and who God created you to be is what it's all about. And the difference between knowledge of God and knowledge of who we are And belief of who we are is all this other stuff. The hurts, the wounds, the judgments. That's what we counsel for. To remove all this stuff. So all this stuff that you hear in church. All this stuff that you know about. But don't really live. 
Each one of you live by what you believe. Isn't that scary? Think of all the things you don't do right or you do wrong purposely or sinful. That's what you believe. There's fear. There's roots of bitterness. There's judgment. That's what prompts us to sin. And then you throw Satan in. He's just going to make it worse. So when we remove much of these roots of bitterness, then what you, what you know becomes belief. Boy, that's powerful. It helps us to understand that what we do, and isn't it interesting, Scripture says what comes out of your mouth comes from the, your heart. Oh, and you go, I don't like what's in my heart because look what comes out of my mouth. It's the same dynamic with belief. We live by what we believe. So we want to take this knowledge of God, this beauty of God, this knowledge and beauty of who you are and remove the stuff that's in the way of it so that it becomes belief. That's what forgiving does. That's what forgiving does. When do we forgive? Primarily, most people will say, well, when I recognize that I've been hurt by somebody and I've judged them, then I will make a decision to forgive them, whatever form that takes. And they really skip over the most important part. If we wait till we judge to forgive, then we've already sinned. Why, why wait till we sin to make a decision to do something? It's a poor indicator of doing something, sin. Virtually, I, I really avoid saying 100%, but 99.9% of the time, we, are, we judge or blame or sin it's because of some perceived hurt or wound. Some hurt or wound. Wouldn't it be neat if we decided to forgive when we're hurt rather than when we've already judged and blamed? It means learning and risking to be a little more aware of that master caution light. To be a little bit more aware of our pain. And men... We are characteristically very poor at this. As a matter of fact, if you played any sports, you were told, suck it up, brush it off, get back in there. And I think for some sports, that's okay. For relationships, it's a terrible thing. Yeah. Uh, Knowing where I am and knowing that Stillwater basically is a life support system for a school... That, that sits in the middle of the, the community. And I'll remind you that I'm a Zags fan. I won't, uh, for those of you that watch basketball, anybody? Okay. Oh, well, basketball is big darn basketball. Yeah. That it isn't appropriate for us to brush off pain. It's appropriate for us to identify it, to label it, to express it properly, and to accept it. All feelings and emotions are messages. That's all they are. And yet, how many times people will respond poorly to how they feel and blame it on how they feel? Feelings and emotions are only messages. Let me give you an example. I shared with you what Jesus said and did in Gethsemane, and this was Matthew's account. 
And so we see a man who says, my heart is filled with sorrow and distress. My heart is nearly broken with distress. He makes his request, if this cup can pass me by, and maybe he was hoping his father would say, son, that's enough, you've done enough, but he didn't. Why didn't he just quit? He was feeling, while alive, about as bad as anyone could feel. He anguished terribly to the point of sweating blood. There are medical reasons that help us to understand that, that his anxiety and tension was so great that the small blood vessels in his body broke and that he sweat blood. Have any of you ever sweat blood? Imagine what he was going through. Imagine the pain. And yet, what did he say to his father's response? Let it be as you would have it, not as I. So he made the right decision no matter how he felt. And yet, it was important to share how he felt so that he could share with the disciples. Sadly, they blew it. It would have been great if Peter had gone up to him and said, Jesus, Let me hold you. I understand. I can see how painful this is for you. But that didn't happen. That's what he was hoping for because he said, Peter, come and pray. Be with me. And he didn't do that. So what we're learning is, what Scripture is teaching us, that we are to share these difficult times as well as delightful and good times. But we're not to make decisions based on how we feel. We'll make decisions based on what God wants for us, what's right, what's true, what's appropriate. That's almost foreign to most people. So we learn to forgive when we're hurt before we have sinned. If I took that example, when I pulled out of my, my on the entrance to the highway with my RX-7, the minute... I realized I was being blocked. I should have stopped and forgiven her immediately before I uttered a word. That would have made a world of difference because I sinned grievously by the things that I said. And I'm sure if she heard me, I wounded her terribly. We have that choice. You have it. I have it. We are to forgive immediately. How often? This is a pretty simple one. How often should we forgive? Always. Always. What does Scripture say? Yes. Jesus was asked, Rabbi, do I forgive seven times? He said, no, you forgive 70 times seven. That's 491. No, 490. Someone actually came up to me at Tulsa Harvest, or at, at Harvest Church and said, I have a title for your next book, 491 and Beyond. <laughs> and I, I had to think about it for a moment. I thought, what's 491? Then I realized, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. But it sounds like it would be about forgiving again, so I'm not going to write another book on forgiving. There's no magic to, four, or to 490. It means to forgive constantly, constantly, constantly. If you're not forgiving effectively 20 or 30 times a day, 20 or 30 times a day, you're likely not keeping up with the hurts and wounds that are in your life. 
I give when couples or individuals come for counseling. And the, the method of my counseling is a week of intense counseling. People come to Liberty Lake, Washington, stay in a motel that I have an agreement with, and we counsel for the week. And one of the lessons I give them on, on an evening is to write down the hurts and wounds that occur between when they leave the office and come back in the next morning. And many people say to me, you know, I'm not going to have very many. Uh, there might be a couple. And they come back in, the front is filled, the back is filled, they've written along the edges. Because when you think about it, there are even little bitty things that hurt us. Little affronts, they need to be forgiven. Little hurts and wounds, they need to be forgiven. And then there are large ones that need to be forgiven. So when it means this happens all day long, it can be as little as someone walking by you and ignoring you. And we just brush it off, don't we? We just, nah. But just that, nah, that's a judgment. A little bitty one, but it's still a judgment. We even attribute to people characteristics like, well, they're, you know, what a jerk. Something like that. Nah. Those are judgments. They need to be forgiven. It's hard to do the little things. It's the big ones that seem pretty easy, pretty simple. Let's take a break. Uh, it's uh, 7.45. Let's take about a 10-minute break, and then we'll come back, and I will share a little bit with you and finish up with you. Thank you. Father, we come back again to uh, share you, to share your son, to share your spirit. So we ask again that you, you simply be here with us through your Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you that you give me permission to do what you would have me do, and I thank you for that. Be with us, Father, and thank you for the gift of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'd like to do, and, and it's the, the painful part for me, is there's, there's so much of this message that I want to share with you. And at the same time, and, and I was talking to uh, this couple here, and uh, I was asked a question. I started to explain it, and his wife said to her, well, buy the book. And I, <laughs> but... It's, it's, it's one thing, uh, it's good to hear it from somebody, and then it's good to be reinforced uh, as, as you choose to, to read or however you choose to do it. I want to go through the prayer briefly with you and then give you a perspective on it. And uh, I didn't do this in, in Tulsa uh, on, or in Broken Arrow, but I thought the, the people who were here five or six years ago when we were here uh, whether you're using the prayer or not, uh, it's going to be good for you. If you are using the prayer, that's even better because it's just going to be a little refresher. But for most of you, I want to give you an idea of what the book was written about. This is a simple little prayer of, of six steps. The six of, of six ingredients, I might want to say, are, are six areas of, of, of uh, forgiving. The s middle six chapters are on this prayer. And so it goes through in depth of how and why we do this and how to affect each part of the prayer. Well, I'd like to go uh, through it with you briefly. And then, and, and one of the ways we're going to end tonight is I'm going to give you an opportunity to forgive someone. It will be totally within yourself. 
You don't have to share it with anyone else. As a matter of fact, forgiving is a very personal thing. It's done individually. It isn't something you do in a group. One of the things that I share uh, in the book is you do not go up to an individual and say, I forgive you for something, especially if they haven't asked you. Most of the time they're going to go, for what? We expect to be told, well, it's okay when we offend people, but don't ever forgive someone to their face unless they've asked you. And even then, it's risky. But forgive everyone for any offense. Going through uh, this prayer is a process of, of sacrifice, of humility, but it's a very specific thing. And every part of this prayer is scripturally sound. I've hinted at a few parts of it, and I'd like to go through it with you now. It starts out by saying, Lord, I forgive. And that means you pick a name, an individual. You cannot forgive everyone who's ever hurt you at one time. I was asked that. Well, can I just say, Lord, I forgive everyone who's ever hurt me? And uh, no. One, functionally it isn't possible because part of the forgiving prayer is to name exactly what it is that they did to you. That's hard. Most of us want to push this aside. It doesn't have to be in great detail. There's an awful lot of woundedness in our world when it comes to physical abuse, sexual abuse. You don't have to go into great detail, but you do have to name it. Why? Because what you're doing is saying, there has been a trespass against me. I'm acknowledging that it is so, and now I'm ready to give up any judgment that's in my heart. So it starts out by saying, Lord, I forgive. Lord, I forgive my dad for the time he did this. And I felt, a very important part, I felt hurt, angry, and abused. That's the first part of this prayer. You state what it is that happened to you and how you felt. The second part of this prayer says, I give you permission to take the judgment and bitterness out of my heart. I don't want it there. I don't want this in my life. I surrender it to you and ask you to remove it. Richie, let me borrow your pen for a moment. It's an interesting part of the prayer. And someone said to me in Germany, Charles, we don't know how to write giving God permission to do something. It's unheard of. And I thought about that. And I thought, well, maybe we should just write it Lord, please do this. But the reality is we have to give God permission to do this. And I'll demonstrate that for you. This is judgment, resentment, and bitterness. Would you take this out of my hand, please? Take it. Take it. Pull it. Take it. What happened? You couldn't do it? Why not? Because I wouldn't let it go. It's that simple. I can say the words... Lord, I give you permission to take the judgment and bitterness out of my heart, but I'm holding tightly. Will he pry your fingers away? No. He will honor and respect your willful decision no matter what your words are. I have to do this. Lord, I give you permission to take the judgment and bitterness out of my heart. I ask you to remove it. I don't want it in my life. It is not easy to do, especially if the offense or the trespass has been particularly grievous. It's very difficult to do. 
We choose to forgive to free us. Do we free others? A lot of discussion about that. What if they're dead? We don't free them. What if they live in in Topeka? We don't forgive them. Now, if you're in a relationship, marriage, uh, buddies, friends, work, whatever it happens to be, church relationship, do you free them? Yes, if in fact you are doing something that frees them. And we'll get into that. And that's what we do when we bless. Look at this. I'm still holding on a little bit. Yes, Lord, I give you permission to take the judgment and bitters out of my life. Except or but there's still it has to be this. It has to be open and free or it is not forgiving. I was asked a good question, Charlie. What about trying to forgive? I have weeded the word try almost completely out of my vocabulary. I'm not a coach, so I don't have to use it to say try to do this or try to do that. But my experience is that the word try is usually used as an excuse for not accomplishing. Were you, did you do this? Well, I tried. My question is, did you succeed? No. Why didn't you just tell me that at first when I asked you, did you do this? I didn't. What did Yoda say about it? Do we know who Yoda is? <laughs> Luke Skywalker crashed into the swamp and little Yoda is standing there and he says to Luke, did you do this? And Luke says, I tried. And Yoda says, there is no try. There is do and not do. There is no try. Now, I know this is a little bit controversial, but there's no such thing as trying to forgive. Either you do it or you don't. Luke 6.46 says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you to do? He doesn't say try. Do it. Do it. Easy? No. You know that up front. So, Lord, I give you permission to take the judgment and bitterness out of my heart. I don't want this in my life. I surrender it to you and ask you to remove it. I have physically felt resentment and bitterness leave me when I have done that. I can't say that you will experience that. I hope you do. I have physically felt resentment and bitterness leave when I have prayed that prayer. I believe it's effective whether we feel it or not, though. The third part of this prayer is really very simple. We've now given the Lord permission to take judgment and bitterness out of our heart, but I still might have a knife in my ribs. I still might have a wound in relation to something has said or not done. So the next part of this prayer says, Lord, heal me. It's that simple. Heal me. Heal me where I have been wounded. Heal me. And the Lord starts right away. Why? Because you've removed the judgment and bitterness. You've given him permission. He now has permission to come deeper into your heart, into your life, into your mind, into your soul, into your body. Powerful. Fourth part of this prayer, and this sounds odd. Forgive me where I've sinned. Charlie, I thought we're forgiving other people. Now we're basically confessing. Yes. It's part of the prayer. Forgive me my part of the conflict. Forgive me for judging which I have done. Forgive me for my part of creating this conflict. It's a continued part 
of the healing process. Forgive me for hating. Exactly. The fifth part of this prayer says, I choose not to blame or hold the others, the actions of others against them. This is a willful, volitional decision that says, I will not hold these things against them. And there's so many ramifications for that. But, 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 it's a decision you make. I go back to simple. It's just not easy to do. If it isn't done, there will be no forgiving. When we hold people to an account, we're storing this resentment and bitterness. Where I hear people say, well, I can forgive, but I won't forget. There's no forgiving there. And at the same time, is forgetting required to forgive? No. It's one of the reasons why people find it difficult to forgive. They say, I just can't forget. God doesn't make you stupid when you forgive. He doesn't do a lobotomy on you just because you decide to forgive. And, some, and yet Scripture says, well, forgiving uh, our offenses are as far as the east is from the west, implying that God has forgotten. If God has forgotten the offenses, how in the world did he teach us about David? How did he teach us about Paul killing Christians? How did he teach us about the mistakes that Peter made? Obviously, he didn't forget. What it means is he doesn't hold it against us. He doesn't forget these things. As a matter of fact, Scripture is filled with all kinds of examples of sins that people have done so that we can learn from them. So I choose not to blame or hold the actions of others against them. I hereby surrender my right to be paid back for my loss. This is where you are willfully and volitionally saying, I am not going to try and balance this. I'm not going to try and balance it by doing something good. I'm not going to try and balance it by doing something revengeful. I'm not going to try and balance it by doing nothing. Christ on the cross is what has balanced the sin and the offense. All we have to do is accept that. Isn't it interesting? It says, I give up my right to be paid back. I don't use the the concept of rights very often because we live in such a politically correct culture that everybody has rights to do everything. God doesn't talk about rights. He talks about sacrifice. But in this case, it says, I give up my right to be paid back. Why? Scripture tells us, that you have a right to an eye for an eye. You have a right to a tooth for a tooth, a limb for a limb, a life for a life. That's Scripture. That is not revenge. That's called parity or balance. That was written because, as it still happens today, I understand, in, in, in some countries, where if you get caught stealing something, they'll cut your hand off. That's inherently unfair. And the, the punishment is far greater, worse than the crime. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, if someone takes your tooth, you have a right to their tooth. You don't have a right to their hand. You don't have a right to kill them. You don't have a right to chop their foot off. You have a right to a tooth. Someone plucks your eye out, you have a right to pluck their eye. It's called balance. It is not revenge. Jesus comes along and says, you've heard that you can get an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He said, no. No. If someone wants your coat, you give them your shirt. 
too. If someone slaps you, you turn the other cheek. Can you see how hard this is getting? Can you see how difficult this is getting? It's why I want to share this with you. It's why I want you to be a disciple. I want you to risk to do this in your life. I'm so tempted to do this. And someone said to me, don't. You don't have to do this. If you buy this book and it isn't effective for you, you email me and I will send you your money back. That's an unconditional, unconditional guarantee. That's how confident I am in what Jesus teaches us. We'll be driving home and Richie will go, Charlie, what did you do? (laughs) Now, those of of you who got free books, you don't get your money back. (laughs) And I know who you are. (laughs) I'm going to see how this works out. I surrender my right to be paid back for my loss by the one who sinned against me. How difficult this is. And listen to this. And in so doing, I declare my trust in God alone as the righteous judge. What a test of our faith that is. I depend in God alone as the righteous judge. We all raised our hands when I asked, do you love the Lord? And I said, we'll see. I'll say it again. We'll see. We are tested constantly. We fail miserably sometimes. But God created us to be restored again and again and again. The last part of this prayer says, Father God, bless them in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. It's that simple. The book is written around this prayer. It explains each step in more detail than I have shared with you. This brings healing to people's lives. It restores relationship with God. And it's really difficult to do. I have been doing this now for many years. I mean, praying this prayer myself. And I just can't imagine not doing it. Not praying this prayer. It has changed my life. Dramatically, I feel closer to the Lord. I, I do some uh, speaking on joy and usually interspersed within, within, within other subjects that I'm teaching. And it's very difficult to describe joy. It's very difficult to describe certain types of pain, too, especially if it's deep spiritual pain as opposed to physical pain. And yet I find more and more and more in my life I have more joy. And it isn't happy. It isn't laughing and joking, although I love that. It's even in the midst of difficult times, there's a greater sense inside that it's okay, that, that things are good, that there's a God who loves me, who sees me. It just doesn't seem to get any better. Sharing a message of faith. Gosh, if my buddies that I flew with 20 and 30 years ago could see me now, they'd say, gosh, he's turned into a religious fanatic. And I would probably think, okay, you know. I don't, it doesn't seem like fanaticism 
in this environment at all. But to be able to share. And the most important thing about what I just shared with you was it's a personal testimony. I can't say, uh, gosh, this man had tremendous healing and, and, and I, I'd want you to try that prayer. No, I, it's going to make more sense to you if, if an individual says to you, yes, this has been. But I come with the message that his, this has helped thousands of people and I want it to help more. There's a perspective I'd like to share with you and I'll end with this. This is, I, I won't explain any more of this. I, I, I can't verbally uh, it's, it, it works. There's a little sign. Jesus works. Give him a shot. Give him an opportunity to do that in your life. When I shared with you before that in, in the uniqueness of who God made you to be, he put each one of you on this earth to be seen and heard and to do it in such a way as a result of who he has made you to be. The problem with being seen and heard is We don't always believe that we are forgiven. We don't always believe that we have value and worth. When we make a decision to forgive, we're clearing the path to the Lord to bring more truth, more of himself to us. It's easier and more readily believable when we clear the path for God. So what does that mean? Well, if I say to you, uh, let's see, uh, uh, are you wonderful? You're not. Okay. <laughs> Are you wonderful? I'm supposed to be. Oh, that's a good answer. I like that. What she's saying is I'm supposed to be, but I don't act wonderfully all the time. Correct? Okay. So I'll, I'm going to amplify this just a little bit. Are you uh, holy and blameless? Huh? Before Christ? Do you believe it? Okay. Uh, I got another one for you. Are you full of love? 100%. All right. All right. Now, now she, she's wavering. Notice she's, she's struggling here. 100% full of love all the time. No, she said no. Okay. She wavered. She wavered. See, the reality is that we spend a lot of time looking at who Jesus is and who God is. And we're supposed to. We're supposed to. God spends a good amount of time looking at you and learning about you. And Scripture does this very well. When I say to you, are you holy and blameless? Are you full of love? I'm not saying it to to trick you. I know most people don't think they're holy and blameless and full of love because of what they do. That's why I asked, are you wonderful? And, and she pondered a little bit and goes, and she's going, well, I don't do wonderful things all the time, so I guess I'm not. The reality is, in God's eyes, in his sight, his eternal set of eyes, He sees you right now as we sit here. And what he sees is who he created. And who he created is holy and blameless and is full of love. That's who you are. It has nothing to do with what you do. 
There's a prison just outside of El Paso called Latuna. It's filled. It's a federal prison filled with criminals. They are holy and blameless in God's sight, full of love. Now, they've made some terrible mistakes. They're in prison. What you do has absolutely no effect on who you are. None. So let's give a little example. So I'll play the devil's advocate here and says, well, uh, Charlie, wait a minute. Holy, blameless, full of love. Well, what about the time I lusted? What about the time I stole? What about the time I lied? What about the time I cheated? And, and, and I'm going to say, yeah, God knows that. And many things you've forgotten. There's all kinds of sin that, that, that he sees and hears. But what did he do? He sent Jesus. He sent his only son to pay the price for every single one of your sins. So when, so, so when God looks at you, he sees from up here this complete package, the big picture of who he made you to be with your sin, sent your son to cleanse you. So he sees you as what? Holy, blameless, full of love. That's who you are. There is no other definition that can sustain for your whole life. Any definition that involves anything that can change cannot be who you are. Your work, your intentions, your thoughts, your behaviors, they cannot be what you are. You ask people who they are, and most will say, well, I'm a doctor or a counselor or a mechanic or a plumber or a student. Every one of those things can change. Well, I'm married, that can change. Anything that can change can't be who you are in God's eyes. Think about that. Think of the the amazing transformation that can happen in your life when you start to believe who you are, not based on what you do. Wow. When we make the decision to forgive, we remove so much of the stuff that makes that truth so much easier to believe. Is that some free pass to sin? No. God hates that you sin. Why? Because it hurts you and it hurts Him. And He loves you. He loves us and He doesn't want us to hurt. But even though He hates our sin, He sent His Son to wash us clean. Why? So that we can be restored every day. We can be restored constantly, no matter what you've done. I counseled a man that put a nine millimeter gun to two people's heads and blew their brains out in a busted drug deal through their bodies in lobster pots so they couldn't be found within a few weeks. He was a broken, broken man. He came to me for counseling. He said, what can I do? Should I turn myself in? I said, what are you gonna, how are they going to prove this? This was seven years ago. A broken man. He had no idea he could be restored in his faith. There was a part of him like a little boy. He loved the Lord, but he felt so unworthy, so defiled by his own sin, and he just could not accept that Jesus paid for all of that defilement and washed him clean. And it wasn't until he was able to forgive others, lots of issues with mom and dad, forgive them, an ex-wife, and to forgive himself was he able to be restored. He is 
beautifully and viably married today with her family, living a life of, of accomplishing God's will. That's what he has for us. That's, that's what it means to believe in, in the living God, in Jesus Christ, that says he paid the price so that I can be restored. We don't see, we seem to forget that symbolism. He died on Friday and came back to life three days later, Easter Sunday. That's what this is talking about. That we die to ourselves and in a sense die to God and die to others every time we sin. And he's saying, be restored. Claim what's here for you. Understand and believe that my son paid the price for all of your sins. Why? So you can be restored again. So you can rise again. So that you can come to life again. And then do what it is that I tell you to do. To serve the Lord. To accept and identify with yourself as as a disciple, a follower. As holy and blameless. There's another little phrase and I like it. That the scripture I'm sharing with you is from the first chapter of Ephesians. It's so clear. Ephesians 2.10 says that you are his handiwork. Those of you who work with crafts or you work with your hands. And most of us do to some in, in some way. You are God's handiwork. You're proud of the product of your hands. He's proud of the product of his hands. You. If you had a big refrigerator, you'd be on that refrigerator. You are his handiwork. Put on this earth to do his will that he has pre-planned for you. And I like that. It says there's a plan. There's something out there that says this is the direction God wants you to go. Look for it. Seek it. It doesn't mean you're going to be a teacher or a pastor or a priest or something like that. There's all kinds of gifts and abilities that he has for us. Administration is a spiritual gift. Maybe you'll be the head of a CEO of a large company, but you'll do it with God in your heart. You'll do it recognizing. You'll do it honestly and fairly because you're holy and blameless in his sight. What a difference it can make. Forgiving is part of that process that removes all of the junk that allows us to see who we really are. God puts you on this earth to be seen and heard. A young man came up to me once and said, wait, let me get this straight then. So if I do this, I'm going to uh, become all I can be. And I said, no, you're not going to become. You already are. You're just going to be revealed. Boy, what a difference it makes. He also said to me, and it was kind of cool, he had two profound things. At the end of the prayer, it says, I declare my trust in God alone as the righteous judge. And he came up and said, let me get this right then. If I, de- if I depend and trust in God alone as the righteous judge, God's going to get this person who I don't like. And I said, you're not hiring a hitman. You know, <laughs> God isn't, God isn't going to do your bidding for you. Yes. Yes. You are God's disciples. How much you choose to do is up to you. My encouragement to you is do it well. Do it with what you're doing. Make the decision to forgive. It's not Charlie Fink. It's God. I'm just passing a message along to you. You be the disciples. Pass the message to others. And you don't have to, you don't have to preach. You just be able to say, you know, I, I learned how to forgive myself. 
I learned how to forgive mom and dad. Lord, I learned how to forgive you. Someone actually asked me, Charlie, did you ever get angry at God? And honestly, I said, you know, that's not generally what I've done. I get angry at other people. And then I remembered my mother died quite young. And I had a terrible relationship with my father. And I remembered I was furious at God. And I said, you took the wrong one. I was so angry. And I hadn't remembered that. You'd think it would be a pretty profound thing to remember. And I hadn't remembered until someone asked me. And then I realized I needed to forgive God. I needed to give him permission to take the judgment and bitterness out of my heart. Was it because he sinned against me? Of course not. I just blamed him for taking my mom. And he stuck me with a man who was bitter and angry and abusive. And I learned why, which we don't usually get too much information about. See, if my mom had stayed alive, I likely never would have forgiven my father. I would have just melded together with mom. She would have supported me. We'd have both been angry at dad. So I believe my mom's death, whether God designed it or it just happened, and before my father died, I learned to love him and feel love for him. I miss my dad. I also believe God was preparing me for being a dad. And I don't think he wanted me to be an angry, bitter man with a son. So I see this, all this positive, beautiful miracle in my life. And yet I was furious. So I had to forgive mom. You are disciples. You will have something to share if you choose to. I do it through counseling, teaching, and writing. You can do it by simply sharing with another person. I'd like to end by reading something to you that came to me very, at almost the last minute before we printed the book. And it just surprised me. And I want to share it with you. And I will end this evening. And thank you so much for being here. While pondering and praying about this last chapter, I was reminded of the many times I've taught on generational sin and my desire to balance the concept with more about generational blessings. I shared earlier about my struggles with my father and the eventual blessing of love before his death. During one of our discussions, my dad shared about his difficult relationship with his father, Charles F. Fink Sr. I'm a third. It helped me see a generational pattern that eventually affected our relationship. I never knew my grandfather as he died several years before I was born. Recently, I was going through some boxes of my dad's belongings. My dad died in 2001. And I found a wallet that I assumed was my dad's. As I looked through, the, as I looked through it, I found an old $2 bill among other notes and business cards. I quickly realized this wasn't my father's wallet. This was my grandfather's wallet, a man I never knew. I felt privileged as I read the notes he'd written to his family in the event of his death. It wasn't a formal will, just an accounting of some finances and a few, few personal directives. The one that stuck out the most for me was a simple statement. And this was handwritten and pasted to the inside of his wallet. And it said, forgive always when at all possible and do everything to make it possible. 
I felt blessed and privileged that 75 years and two generations later, the message my grandfather shared with his family would be the subject of a book by his grandson. My hope and fervent prayer is that these writings help you to do everything possible to forgive always. What joy it brings to believe in a loving God who is fully invested in us and hopes for the same from us. When we choose to forgive, we are proclaiming that relationship. Thank you so much.